0: Hello everyone. Today's episode is an interview with Professor Claven of the University of Houston. Professor Claven is a historian of early America and the Atlantic world with a focus on slavery and the abolitionist movement. He is the author of The Battle of Negro Fort, The Rise and Fall of a Fugitive Slave Community, which just came out last month. In this episode, Professor Claven explains how the Haitian Revolution impacted France and the United States. For a century after the Haitian Revolution, Western historiography held that this successful slave revolt was an isolated event. Then, in 1938, C. L. R. James published The Black Jacobins, Toussaint Louverture, and the San Domingo Revolution. In the book, he argued that black Haitians were influenced by French Enlightenment ideas, but also brought their own ideas and experiences into play. They, in turn, influenced French actions during the French Revolution. James overturned the previous history by showing that black Haitians were not an undifferentiated mass that spontaneously rose up against the white masters, but were in fact eloquent, intelligent, organized revolutionaries who shaped the future of Haiti while impacting events in France. Professor Claven's work follows James by expanding the Haitian Revolution further. In this interview, he explains how the overthrow of French colonialism in Haiti radicalized American abolitionists, inspired slave revolts, and was enormously influential on both sides of the Civil War. Please enjoy. Uh, out of the classroom and not doing my dissertation work and that sort of thing. I actually don't like to immerse myself too much in history. I, I need a break every now and then. Got to listen to my my books and stuff. Yeah. Non history, geeky now, fantasy stuff. I,
1: listen, I tried to. I, what did I read this this summer? I read Hamlet for the first time. Oh, yeah. And just loved it. But I like the history. You know, like, like the oh, history. Oh, man. I like to contextualize it historically. I try reading novels. Um, fiction and they just they, it's very rarely do they grip me um, and so I always try to mix it up in the summers but I just I always fall back and even now when I'm lounging on the sofa watching a show invariably it's the history channel or discovery channel and it's some sort of and even if it's they're looking for the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot <laughs> you know I'm still I'm still fascinated by the history of where the legend of Bigfoot and things of that nature so I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with it really and you never
0: get burnout.
1: I do, but like I said, you know, if I if I if I'm if I'm a little bit burnt, and I go run three miles and get a good night's sleep, I'm ready to go the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. My head is clear.
0: Well, yeah. maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about the Loch Ness or myths or something in this <laughs> interview. You know what I think is funny? No, 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 because. I think a lot of the time when we as historians, because we are taught to look at facts and that sort of thing, that these sort of myths, they look as something silly. But one thing that I thought was very interesting was when I was reading about um, Indian history under Britain, um, they had the, the tea plantations and literally tens, I think maybe even hundreds of thousands of people were sent there and the death rate was so high. Uh, literally tens of thousands. And there were a lot of Indians who were saying that the British are vampires and that they were eating people. And I mean, you know, obviously the whole the cannibalism thing wasn't true, but I mean, they might as well have been. So um, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were the slaves in Haiti had certain myths as well about the French people having evil powers and that sort of thing. So maybe that'll get brought up. Do you have any good uh, stories related there?
1: In the book, I talk about how there was, from the opposite perspective, the French and American slave owners, um, they started to advertise that throughout the revolution, rebel slaves were cannibalizing, you know, white plantation owners and their families. And there's this legend, you know, it's, it's now largely deemed apocryphal, where the slaves are running through the town square with a white infant impaled on a, spe- a spear and the rebel slaves are waving that as like their their flag as their standard. Hmm. And it turns out there's no evidence of that. But you see that in the French Revolution as well. People are accused of doing the the Jacobins and things like that. So we just don't know these atrocity stories. Where's, where does fiction pick up from fact? And all this stuff is probably rooted in some sort of reality, but it's just hard to determine sometimes myth versus reality. Well,
0: on the issue of myth versus reality, I think that's a good way to start this, because the first question that I wanted to ask you was, how was the Haitian Revolution's ultimate triumph over France received within France? Because, of course, Napoleon was obviously not very happy, but did some French people look at it as a triumph of freedom, or was it sort of an opposite view?
1: Absolutely, Um, and what is often lost about the Haitian Revolution is that, I mean, A, it doesn't begin without the French Revolution, and B, um, there are there's a role that free people of color from colonial Saint Domingue they play in helping to launch the French Revolution. You know, these free men of color come to Paris, 1788, 1789, and they start clamoring for voting rights, equal political rights on the island, and ultimately the government grants them those powers. And right there is stark evidence that there is widespread support for people of color in the French Caribbean to have equal civil and political rights, which is pretty revolutionary, as you can imagine at the time. Now, there's no discussion of slaves at this point, but at least racially speaking, there's a lot of French people, politicians, they're willing to you know, be radical here and support these free men of color. Free men of color go back to the island and hell breaks loose. There's a vicious civil war Eventually, the slaves get involved, and then we have the Haitian Revolution. And, you know, move a couple of years forward, and there is still um, a lot of support for the black rebels. Um, Not the majority in any way, shape, or form, but by 1794, the French directorate abolishes slavery in the Caribbean. And so France is way ahead of its time, offering people of color, civil and political rights, Abolishing slavery, I always consider this the first Emancipation Proclamation. Hmm. And move ahead five years forward, Napoleon tries to reinstitute slavery in the French Caribbean. So I would never, I would not say that you know the the majority of the French people or the French politicians or government officials ever really supported the Haitian Revolution, but large numbers did. And just as just about everything is divisive in France during their revolutionary period, the way they discuss, talk about, vote on Haiti is also extremely, extremely divisive. But there is support for sure. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So now I want to talk about how the ideas of the Haitian Revolution spread, particularly across the United States, because for a long time, uh, the other powers tried to take over Haiti, Britain, Spain, there was a French blockade. And yet despite this, Uh, the news and ideas of the Haitian Revolution spread even to slaves themselves in the United States. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, two ways. I mean, I think most obviously today would be cell phones and the internet. Turn of the 18th century, it's newspapers, Hmm. um, pamphlets to a lesser extent, but day-by-day reports are coming out of Haiti. And oftentimes they're reported in Europe. They appear in European papers first, and then they are transferred to American newspapers. Sometimes those European newspapers themselves are physically transported to the United States. But there's also in Philadelphia, in South Carolina, in Boston, New York City, they have reporters. Sometimes correspondents. Sometimes refugees from Saint Domingue are, you know, telling their stories. So there are just nonstop, you know, uh, countless eyewitness accounts of what's going on in, in Haiti at the time. At the same time, I think the second way that the information is spread is through this oral tradition of sailors and refugees. So you have white sailors, you have plantation owners fleeing the island, you have white you know, non-plantation owners fleeing the island, you have black participants in the Haitian Revolution. They may be full-time soldiers, part-time soldiers, they may be French, they may be Spanish, they may be British, but they're crisscrossing the Atlantic. And so especially in the Southern United States, in fact, wherever there a slavery, New York City at the time, you have black sailors who've been to Haiti, even if they're not Haitian themselves. They have seen things. They've heard things. They've talked to people. And so this is how the, the, the information spreads. And so we look back sometimes and we think, wow, they didn't have email. They didn't have CNN. They, you know, how could they be kept abreast of events? How could Americans know really what's going on in Haiti or in France or in London? But they know. And just as information today can be... Uh, fictionalized, or sensationalized, or in some cases, extremely accurate, so too with the information coming out of Haiti at the time. Yeah, I think you
0: make a good point in your book, because on the one hand, there is the highest people in various countries who want to keep the genie in the bottle, want to blockade Haiti, make sure this doesn't get out, and yet at the same time, it does get out. I believe there was an anecdote in your book where a slave master made his slave read newspapers on Haiti, you'd think it wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't want that to get out like that.
1: No, no, and, and you know my book really takes place, much of it in the mid 19th century during the, you know, before and during and even after the American Civil War, but we have their accounts of these runaway slaves during the American Civil War. With, with copies of pamphlets, hmm. newspaper articles describing the Haitian Revolution. And probably my favorite part of the entire book is, I think his name is Norris Wilkerson. He's a runaway slave, a contraband in outside of Charleston, South Carolina during the Civil War. And he claims, he swears, that he fought alongside Tucson hmm. 60 years ago in the Haitian Revolution. Maybe he didn't. But still, he believed he did. He claimed he did. And so... There's definitely people in the generations before him who had seen the Haitian Revolution, had participated in the Haitian Revolution, and they lived in the United States ultimately. So they are telling stories. New Orleans' historiography is just filled with French refugees, French Haitian refugees. They come to New Orleans, and for generations and generations, they tell stories to their ancestors, their descendants, about what they experienced in Haiti. So one thing
0: which I do think we should probably talk about and which is a central theme to your book is not just the Haitian Revolution itself, but the person of Toussaint Louverture, because Toussaint Louverture looms in your book and in the history itself as this titan of black emancipation. Do you want to explain why he, among all those, was the great figure and not this cast of characters like Dessalines and the others?
1: Certainly. And, you know, we're looking here at the late 19th, I'm sorry, late. 18th century. And this is an era of great men. You know, this is an era of George Washington, Napoleon Bonaparte, Simon Bolivar. And there's just a different way that Western civilization is viewing history. And today, historians generally prefer the social history. They prefer the common man. You know, they prefer the cultural history and they're still political and diplomatic. But the great man is is no longer the favorite or first choice of historians and even students. Um, late 18th, early 19th century, that's not the case. And so I think people are just, at this point in time, they tend to view and understand history through the biography of great men. Just so happens he is the greatest man to emerge from the Haitian Revolution. So I think there's just a cultural tendency to sort of embrace him, but he's also sort of, he's so symbolic that he can represent for people who are either for or against the Haitian Revolution, he can represent both sides. So if you're a radical egalitarian and you think black people should all be free and equal, and Toussaint says and does things, that he just would really appeal to your sensibilities. He's this literate black man. He shows mercy to his opponents. Um, He tries to abolish slavery. He's an egalitarian. He's a great man. At the same time, if you are fearful of the Haitian Revolution, the precedent it sets, if you want black people to remain in chains, And then Toussaint represents the evils of emancipation and liberation because he's a black man, he's violent, um, he's in charge, he's egotistical, um, he's dictatorial on occasion. And so you might argue, as people did, that that he's a savage. And if we free the slaves, if slaves earn their freedom or take their freedom, then our country, our world will be ruled by black savages like Toussaint.
0: Yeah, and... I think one very interesting thing about your book is that you talk about how white southerners whenever they dealt with a slave insurrection they attributed it to louverture personally or to the haitian revolution in general and you talk about uh nat turner's revolt Why didn't the southern slave owners realize that this was perhaps an indigenous response or that largely their grievances were indigenous? Why did they attribute everything to Haiti?
1: I think generally they actually did. And particularly in the case of Matt Turner, you know, the Virginia state government really considers seriously 1831 and 1832 abolishing slavery Hmm. for that very reason. Slavery is so oppressive. These black people are so mistreated. Um, They are so filled with vengeance that things like slave revolts are inevitable. So I think generally that's their initial response. But as you get deeper into the 19th century, as slavery continues its demise globally, not just in the northern United States, um, other parts of North America, the Caribbean, other parts of the world, slavery is, is disappearing. And as white Southerners become more defensive about their institution, more paranoid about losing their valued institution they then start to create this myth that their slaves will not revolt. Their slaves could never revolt. Their slaves actually enjoy being enslaved. So I think their initial reaction is, well, we knew this was going to happen. But that's not the face that they put forward. When they communicate with outsiders, when they communicate with Northerners, when they communicate with Britons, when they communicate with us, posterity, that's when they start to shape this idea of the contented and happy slave And it's much easier if you're making that argument in Virginia, in South Carolina, in Georgia, that your slaves are happy. Well, if they rise up, one way you can explain that is you point overseas and you say, well, that's because it's in the French Caribbean. That would never happen here. That happened with those crazy radicals during the French Revolution. That would never happen here. So I think over time, you know, historians talk a lot about paternalism and this really absurd mythology that only in the antebellum South were slaves treated well, happy, and content. You know, slaves, they would admit, slaves everywhere have been mistreated, but in the antebellum South, slaves were well taken care of. They never revolted, they loved their masters, etc. Well, Haiti, obviously, would, would be a way for them to just or explain away all these acts of violent resistance. So, speaking of
0: the Chupacabra, then, because we've got quite a few myths, you bring up the myth of the docile slave, but also in your book, you talk a lot about this myth in a vast transnational conspiracy to inspire uh, slave revolts. Can you tell us a bit about this?
1: Yeah, I just think there's, it sort of goes to my previous point, where quite honestly, in the antebellum period, so many steps are taken legislatively, militarily, to make sure slaves don't revolt. The black population is a small part of many parts of the South in the decades before the Civil War. Where in Haiti, in Jamaica, um, Brazil. You know, slaves are the vast majority of the population. And there are exceptions in the Antebellum South, like Charleston, South Carolina. But in most parts of the South, like Virginia, the largest slave state, uh, slaves are a clear minority of the population. So all odds are stacked against them. And so every time there's an upheaval, a slave runs away and, you know, resist violently, or you have an actual uprising like Nat Turner, then again, people will look overseas to say that there is there must be somebody, you know, outside abolitionist, uh, these, these rebel pirates from Haiti, they're coming to our community and they're telling our slaves to, to do this and do that. And so what you will see is laws like the Negro Seamen Acts, where for many years in the decades before the Civil War in the antebellum South, black sailors who go into ports like Charleston, they have to sit in jail mm. as long as they're in the city because they're not trusted. And so you know, we look back and we sort of see that Southerners invented this conspiracy, but they, it was actually more than that. They, they actually thought this was a realistic possibility. So when they see these black sailors getting off these boats, they force them to be incarcerated until they leave. They're so scared that they're going to spread their radical ideology to their slaves.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but even though there wasn't some global black revolutionary conspiracy, right. there, there were Haitians who went across the Americas spurring on revolution.
1: Undoubtedly. And what I always remember, first and foremost is that there were Haitian revolutionaries who fought in the American Revolution, people of color. Hmm. So during the American Revolution, the Siege of Savannah is the most famous example. There's a whole regiment of people of color from Haiti who helped the Americans fight the tyrannical British. They fight for the freedom of, of Americans. A couple of years later, these free men of color, many of them are leaders of the black insurrection known as the Haitian Revolution. And then moving forward, you have you know former rebel slaves in the Haitian Revolution. <clears throat> they crisscross the Atlantic world. They are involved in Cuban insurrections, or at least they're accused of being involved. They're involved in Brazil. Uh, Bolivar, you know, welcomes a whole um, a whole boatload of armed Haitians who come to assist him in freeing Latin America from Spanish tyranny. And so again, there, there's there's a myth and there's a legend of this conspiracy, but there there's enough. Facts to sort of demonstrate. Now, this was an actual real thing. You know, this this isn't a conspiracy. It's actually occurring. Where black Haitians who had fought in the revolution, they are traveling the Atlantic world. They're not only spreading their ideology, you know, through their face-to-face conversations with people, but they're carrying weapons and they're joining these revolutionaries in places like Latin America. And so it really is sort of this. You really can't tell this story without sort of taking cognizance of an Atlantic perspective or transatlantic history, because there is a movement of not only ideology, but actual revolutionaries, and they're involved all over the place.
0: Right. So earlier, you mentioned the uh, Negro Seamen Act. Did I get that correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. The um, What other measures then did the South take to prevent a slave uprising?
1: Yeah, you know, it's very fascinating. One question that you always get discussing the Haitian Revolution was, well, what was the impact... On slavery in the United States and I think the assumption is usually that this helped slaves Um, Maybe they were inspired by the Haitian Revolution as many were Um, Maybe they were motivated to do things they wouldn't have done before and there's evidence of that But the way I come away from this typically I think a lot of historians would agree that the Haitian Revolution set a precedent that forces white slave owners to amp up their vigilance to pass more laws, to make the pre-existing slave codes more harsh, to restrict the movement of their slaves even further, to punish their slaves uh, even further. These white American slave owners are so justifiably fearful of their slaves rising up that they go to even more extreme measures to make sure a Haitian revolution doesn't happen in Virginia, Maryland, or South Carolina. So it's debatable. But certainly for many American slaves, as a result of the Haitian Revolution, their lives probably get worse moving forward.
0: So one thing I want to talk about before we get into the Civil War itself Mm -hmm. is one of the major catalysts for the Civil War, which is John Brown's infamous raid on Harper's Ferry which you argue was in part inspired by the cult of Louverture. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, about that?
1: Yes, and if you, if you read anything on John Brown, he's you know, this radical white egalitarian, um, very unsuccessful in most parts of his life, but boy, he is a freedom fighter. He is zealous about it. He's eager to be a martyr, if need be, for the cause. And there are many things that inspire him, the language and declaration of independence, the preamble of the Constitution, But while I was doing research for the book, um, in addition to Norris Wilkerson's story, maybe the coolest thing I found was uh, an interview that one of the jailers in today, West Virginia, where John Brown was imprisoned after his Harper's Ferry raid. Uh, So many decades later, this lone jailer said that he used to socialize with Brown in the evenings. They used to have long conversations, and he found Brown, Brown to be quite... Reasonable, quite sensible, quite affable. He seemed to be a pretty much good guy, uh, despite what he had tried to do to the South. But this interview, which was in, I think, the New York Sun, the jailer goes on to say that you know Brown had a small collection of books. One of them was a biography of Lou Vitor. Mm. And at one point, the conversation turned to that book, and Brown made it crystal clear to this, this jailer that this was his idol. Mm. He said that he had read everything he could throughout his lifetime of this, this amazing man. Uh, Toussaint and the Haitians proved that slave revolts could be, could be successful. You know, Using mountains and maroon camps could be a great way to, to launch them and, and, you know, and make this rebellion endure. And so there's very good evidence to suggest this is why John Brown targeted the Appalachian Mountains. And so people for generations, for years, historians have argued that John Brown was crazy. He was insane. He had no chance of, of winning. And I think I see their point of view. But if you are so obsessed with Haitian history as John Brown appears to be, you could convince yourself very easily that a slave revolt could be successful. If you're like a guerrilla war today, you know, we've seen throughout the centuries, you know, small groups of indigenous people uh, willing to fight for decades, uh, unwilling to, you know, give in to a a militaristic empire. Um, You can survive. And endure and you can actually, you know, become free eventually. And I think that's what Brown was trying to accomplish. He was just trying to launch a second Haitian revolution. And so I think calling him insane is, is not giving him his due. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.
0: One thing I think is interesting about the book is that not only do you talk uh, in quite a bit of detail about how the Haitian Revolution was a very influential in the buildup to the Civil War, but that it was actually influential in policy during the Civil War. Yes. In particular, you argue that the procession of the Civil War was affected by the Haitian Revolution because one tactic that abolitionists favored, if not the military at large, was arming black slaves in emulation of the Haitian Revolution. Can you tell us a little bit about this and the difference between the idea
1: and then the actual practice? Okay. Yeah. You might have to remind me of the, <laughs> the two-party question. Okay. So so I will say, so the the idea is now, again, Americans, people today, we like to simplify history to a fault. And so there is this again myth again. There's this myth that Northerners lacked racism and Southerners were racist because they were slave owners in the decades before the Civil War. Many white Northerners were extremely prejudiced, bigoted, and racist in the early 19th century. Yes, they had gotten rid of slavery, but there was still racial discrimination, some cases violent racial discrimination. So there was a lot of issues regarding that sort of ideology of white supremacy. It was an American phenomenon. It was a global phenomenon. It was not just a Southern thing. So as the Civil War breaks out and as all these runaway slaves, as they called them, contrabands, from, from even before the war starts, they start to volunteer for service. And it takes a couple of months, even a year or so, before the North is desperate for soldiers. But this... This issue persists. The North starts to run out of volunteers and these runaway slaves, and increasingly it's it's tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands, are begging for weapons and and, uh, a Union uniform. And logic would say, well, arm these people. It will hurt the South. It will help the North. This is just an easy solution, right? But many white Northerners did not think blacks had the manliness to fight. They lacked the courage to fight. They were quote unquote savages who would shoot, you know, northerners instead of southerners. And this is where the abolitionists come in with their history books. And all they do is they point to the Haitian Revolution as concrete evidence that if the if slaves are promised freedom, if they are given what you know what they want, they will fight manly, they will fight revolutionary style, they will fight gloriously for the cause. And so from even before this war breaks out, there is a lobbying effort to arm black soldiers. And ultimately, it comes down to the Commander-in-Chief, Lincoln. And he hesitates for several years. But ultimately, with the Emancipation Proclamation, he officially allows um, black southern slaves to enlist in the Union Army and in the Navy. And so what you really see here is this incredible sort of lobbying effort. And ultimately, you have some of Lincoln's closest advisors, like William Whiting. You know, he publishes a book early in the war, about the war powers of the president. And this is all John Quincy Adams had made arguments decades before. But Whiting, very close associate of Lincoln, he, he makes this clarion call to arm slaves. And he says it is, the, it is in the, quote, war powers of the executive, the president, to do this during wartime. So whether or not you can arm slaves, you know, slaves or black people were not even allowed in the U.S. Army at the time. But during war, Whiting says, Mr. President, you have the powers. And this is like a best-selling book. And Lincoln, just like he ultimately becomes convinced of the idea that this is a war over slavery. This is a war over black freedom. We need to free the slaves. Thus, the Emancipation Proclamation. But he also is convinced of not only do we need to free these people, we need to give them what they want, guns and jackets. And once he does this, going back to ancient history, this is the recipe for citizenship. The way you earn and prove citizenship is you fight for the country. And by Lincoln understood this. And he knew that if he was gonna give these men the right to fight, he's basically granting them citizenship rights. So it shows you how far he evolved in a very short period of time.
0: So you're going to have to help me on this because I'm a Europeanist, not an Americanist, but there was a particular battle led by slaves. It was or not by slaves, but um I, I believe uh just African Americans in general, although there might have been uh slave uh soldiers, it was featured in the movie Glory. Correct, Help yeah. me out. Which was what was the battle?
1: That is the Battle of Fort Wagner, and you have the 54th and 55th Regiment, the, the movie Glory, great movie about the fifty fourth regiment, white officers, um, but all black soldiers and some sergeants. And uh, listen, I, I talk about fall out of your chair um moment as to when you're doing research. I was in the Massachusetts Historical Library going through some newspaper about the 54th Regiment. And right after they organized and right before they departed for South Carolina, a lot of the regiments would name, you know, have these company names, and regimental names. Well, C Company of the 54th Regiment, which is... They play a big role in the movie Glory and in the Battle of Fort Wagner, but they called themselves the Toussaint Brigade. Wow. And so there is just more evidence that the the story, the history of Haiti and Toussaint survived among African-Americans long after the revolution, you know,
0: ended. It's always good as a historian to see your theories turn out to have some weight to them. But the reason why I bring that up is because, and again, I'm not an Americanist, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe— that before that moment, Abraham Lincoln originally was planning on moving the slaves from Absolutely. the South to Liberia and Africa. But after the Battle of Fort Wagner and he saw African-Americans fighting for the United States, that he decided that there was a possibility they could live together. Is that apocryphal? Or... No,
1: you're very close. Uh, okay. Like many, you know, Lincoln was not an abolitionist. You could argue he became one during the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, he was a staunch anti-slaveryite. So he absolutely hated slavery. He was sickened by slavery. He saw a slave trade when he was a teenager in New Orleans, and he he never forgot the sight of human beings being bought and sold on the auction block. It just disgusted him. Um, That being said, he was not, like John Brown, a full racial egalitarian. And so Lincoln is all over the place. He's a politician. He, he, He straddles multiple lines all the time. But what I think Lincoln tried to do is he tried to find the easiest solution to placate all those racist Northerners and even some of those white slave owners. And he adopted a plan that goes back to Thomas Jefferson and and the founding generation was to abolish. The plan was to abolish slavery and then remove these emancipated people from our shores, because I think Lincoln understood there was such a racial problem in America, particularly in the north. And he said these people will not be allowed to live here. These people will not be allowed to go to school. They're allowed to have good jobs and careers. So, you know, it's not that he was looking out for their best interest primarily. He was looking out for America's and white Americans' best interest primarily. So he was a colonizationist. That's what they called it. So as late as 1861, 1862, he is getting the federal government to fund a project of colonizing slaves where? Off the coast of Haiti. The I think it was called, the mm. Island of Cows. And early Civil War... Several hundred former slaves, they volunteer for this. They are exported, if you will, um, to this island. Many die. They're miserable. They hate it. They're not doing well. And they come back. And so it wasn't really the Battle of Fort Wagner, but it was that failed experiment in conjunction with black military service made Lincoln start to realize the colonization thing is not going to happen. And if that's not going to happen they're going to have to become citizens at some point. And I think that does help encourage him to sort of lean towards military service for black Americans.
0: That is an absolutely fascinating thing that America was trying to essentially colonize with black people. That's a book in and of itself. Maybe you should, maybe we should cut this part out (laughs) so nobody can take your idea.
1: Trust me, they weren't the first. The British did this and Sierra Leone becomes a a colony of, of expatriated former slaves. And so- Americans, you know, were late to the game in abolition. They sort of followed the British on some hand, and and the colonization scheme was sort of a British invention that they will try to mimic, albeit unsuccessfully.
0: So one thing I wanted to bring up when you were talking about the African Americans trying to harm themselves like the Haitians, but you said that the Northerners wouldn't allow it. Mm -hmm. One major theme of your book is the rewriting of black masculinity. Uh, You argue that before the Haitian Revolution, whites believed or at least propagated the idea of blacks as naturally subservient. Mm -hmm. Then the Haitian Revolution imbued blacks with virility and strength Can you tell us how this affected the view of Blacks, not just in Haiti, but across the world?
1: Yeah, I think there was for many centuries, as part of the whole slavery project, Europeans adopted these ideas, racialized ideas, that African Americans, African descended people were inferior to start, but also increasing this idea that African descended men, Black men, were they were incapable of rising to the level of masculinity that white men innately had and so for black americans for black haitians they have a, a doubly difficult task of proving their a humanity which you think today would is just accepted that human beings are not animals but this is not the way this was <laughs> hundreds of years ago i mean the argument was widespread that these were a subhuman species just look at Tom, what thomas jefferson had to say So not only do black people are, are, they're trying to free themselves, get their freedom. They're trying to prove that they're humans. And for men, black men, they're trying to prove that they are men. And it's such a hard thing to balance. If you take up arms and you kill your slave owner who has enslaved you and your family for for your entire life, and then you kill a white soldier who's coming to re-enslave you, well, a lot of Europeans and and white Americans, it's very likely they will say that you are not gentlemanly or you're not masculine. You're a savage. And so, you know, you're being accused of being effeminate because you are enslaved and you don't rise up enough. But then when you do rise up and you do it successfully like the Haitians, you're called savage. You're not even given the credit of being manly. And in this time period, this revolutionary era, you know, really more than ever in, in Western history, there's this notion that, People are only deserving of citizenship if they fight and kill for it. And so for black people in Haiti, they're, they're killing for freedom, but they're still not being called men. Um, and I really think this is where T- Toussaint, again, he becomes very valuable because of his actions. And he, he is so imperfect. Um, Haitians today, extremely critical of him, historians over the years. But in that time period, you know, anti-slavery advocates, abolitionists, radical egalitarians, They really put forth this really positive image of this this black man who, who looked like, he dressed like, he sounded like George Washington and Napoleon. And it's amazing. If you look at the artwork of all of these men, including Toussaint, they're dressed similarly. They're the same height. Their hair is coming out of their hat the same way. They're all wearing soldiers' uniforms. They ride horseback similarly. And you really begin to see that, you know, he's not a black man in some of these images. He's just a great man, as we discussed before. So I think Toussaint is really a symbol of positive black or just masculinity in general at the turn of the 19th century. And that's why it resonates. It definitely resonates among you know, people who despise slavery. But I think there is there begins to be some crossover, especially in Europe. I and mean, they, they for years, they've they really put him on a pedestal. And, you know, all these great French writers, French historians, they, for, for more than a century, they, 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 they really do compare him favorably to Napoleon. They compare him favorably to George Washington. And so it's really pretty, for him to accomplish Haitian independence is one thing. What he also accomplishes just more globally, establishing the, the humanity of black people but also the, the masculinity of black men. So he, he, he accomplishes quite a bit, to say the least.
0: And beat three empires when Napoleon sent uh, Leclerc, but then also Britain tried to invade and Spain. Yeah. So. yeah.
1: And so just think, every time he, he does he, he these unprecedented historical military accomplishments, he has to be very careful. Once you defeat them, once they submit, what do you do next? Because if you... In, in prison too many, if you slaughter people on the battlefield, obviously, then you will be labeled all sorts of things and that will work against the project of emancipation. So, and, and he just, he handles it masterfully. And again, he, he's imperfect, but he really accomplishes what very few of anyone could have done in that situation at that time. He really is. He deserves the label of a great man. So
0: one uh, question that I did want to ask you is particularly about the historiography of the haitian revolution because for a long time the view on the haitian revolution was that this was one isolated event of a slave uprising because uh, there weren't many if any other successful slave uprisings throughout the rest of the european dominated world however You and other historians are making the point that this actually was hugely influential. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've talked about um, America and the Atlantic world in general, but can you explain a little more how the Haitian Revolution wasn't just this confined space, even though there
1: wasn't necessarily uh, another slave revolution? You know, words (coughs) and phrases are so important, and I still struggle with how to quickly describe the Haitian Revolution, and I think there was a long time when I first started studying it, I would refer to it as the largest slave revolt in world history. But then you look at the ancient world, and there probably may have been larger revolts. Maybe not. I used to refer to the Haitian Revolution as the only successful slave revolt in world history. and That's not really the case. If you look at Palmeiras and the Jamaicans, and they signed these treaties with these colonial powers to leave them alone for perpetuity. So not necessarily. So now the terms I like to use is the one of the most successful slave revolts in world history or one of the largest slave revolts in world history. So the point is there is stuff like this happening all over the place, particularly in the age of revolution. And, you know, so I just published a book on the Battle of Negro Fort. And there's another example where you, during and after the War of 1812, you have in Spanish, Florida, an abandoned British fort occupied by hundreds, close to a thousand fugitive slaves. And they are led by a quote unquote, French Negro. His name was Garcon. He's a runaway slave from Pensacola, very likely came from Louisiana before that. And so we have no evidence to suggest that he's from Haiti or he spoke Haitian or knew the Haitian revolution. But I bet you he knew about the Haitian revolution. He very well may have been from Haiti or his parents probably were refugees from the island. And so you just have these, there's too many examples of not only actual Haitian people or their descendants fighting for freedom you know, throughout the Atlantic world, but it's just you have these other, what you would call sort of isolated incidents, but just slave upheaval in general is contagious in this time period. And quite honestly, wherever you have slavery, you have slave resistance. Wherever you have slave resistance, you have slave revolts. I think the Haitian Revolution deserves a little special attention because it results in an actual nation. And you don't see that anywhere else. So so it is exceptional. But by the same token, it's just, it's a larger version of what we see copied throughout the Atlantic world in this time period.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. We talked about chupacabras and black masculinity. <laughs> uh, I think in particular, it's interesting how black men, when they were trying to prove that they were masculine, were competing against Frenchmen in powdered wigs with high heels, but that's the world that we lived in. Yes, yes. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to uh, tell us about?
1: No, I think we've covered it all. I could talk about the Haitian Revolution forever, so you better cut me off at some point or we'll be in trouble.
0: All right, that'll (laughs) be for our next episode. Thank you very much. As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.
1: Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.